In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, please be seated. My grandparents, uh, Grandpa Kenningswald and Grandma Kenningswald, were missionaries to Tibet in the 1930s. And this was a time when the bandits roamed the countryside. And one night asleep in their tent, my grandmother woke up when she heard the voices of bandits outside the tent discussing whether or not to rob and kill these foreigners. And she shook my grandfather and said, Dick, Dick, wake up. They're going to kill us. And my grandfather said to her, Helen, if we're going to die, we're going to die. There's nothing we can do about it. I'm going back to sleep. <laughs> and he did. He didn't say, God will protect us. I don't, he didn't fall on his knees and pray all night long, agonizing prayer, that they'd be safe. He just went back to sleep. My grandfather and grandmother, who are missionaries and medics and relief workers, and they did so much with the Tibetan people, he did die a few years after that at the age of 37, not at the hand of bandits, but from a bacterial infection in his lungs. They could not evacuate him from the interior of, of Tibet quickly enough to get to Shanghai to the hospital there to save him. And on the military transport plane that flew him and his family, including my mom, out of Tibet, as he was dying, he cared for a nurse who had become ill. And one indicator of the maturity of our faith in God is our attitude toward and our actions during suffering and death. The sermon, the sermon this morning is the first of a series that we're doing on 1 Peter. It's wonderful to do a series together for the of us, those of us who like Lone Ranger preaching. It's a great discipline and a collaboration. And uh, there is more to be had in, the, in, the, in that collaboration, I think, than doing it individually, right? So delighted to be doing that um, with the others. And 1 Peter is a letter that the Apostle Peter writes to Galatian Christians dispersed uh, uh, throughout what is now modern-day Turkey. And Peter writes this very pastoral letter to strengthen the faith of these Christians who are undergoing persecution, uh, enduring hostilities and suffering. And this is probably not an organized uh, campaign of persecution by the government. It is rather an ad hoc kind of harassment, uh, ongoing daily abuse and criticism that these followers of Jesus were receiving from their neighbors and perhaps even family members, because to follow Jesus was disruptive of the family. Um, Christians were perceived to be anti-family, a closed society, engaged in all manner of despicable activities. According to the Roman historian Tacitus, they were a pernicious superstition who were the hatred of the human race. Pliny the Younger called Christians obstinate and mad adherents of a depraved superstition. And as the story got around about these Christians, it became more absurd as sometimes happens with stories that are driven by fear and misunderstanding. Uh, and, and they were being blamed for things far worse than the passions of the flesh that Peter was exhorting them to avoid in the first place. So for this reason, Peter calls these Christians sojourners, they're resident aliens who are living in a land far from home, and they want to go home. Uh, it implies that the way of these followers of Jesus is very different from that of the world around them. Not in its depravity as a superstitious story circulating cast these Christians, but it's in its exemplary goodness. They are called, they're also called chosen sojourners, indicating that their identity comes from God's choice of them to become a part of God's people. 
The writer Peter later identifies them as a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of his own. And he's using here the words of the Exodus covenant, which comes after the Noahic covenant that, we, that, uh, that Sarah just read from this morning. We should also keep in mind that 2,000 years ago, people were already surrounded by death and suffering. They lived during a time when it was common for a woman to die giving birth. It also frequently happened that a child did not live to see his or her first birthday. There was no midlife crisis 2,000 years ago, but only because there was no midlife. You were a child until you were 12 or 13. Then you got married, you went to work, and it probably wasn't a job that you loved. Um, had children of your own, and by the time you were in your mid-30s, you were most often toothless and before long dead. That's kind of depressing. <laughs> but life was hard, and, and following Jesus made it even harder. No golden years, retirement plan. And for these Christians, their investment was in heaven, where an inheritance imperishable, undefiled, and unfading was being kept for them. So it's understandable that the thrust of Peter's letter is toward the future because this will help his readers endure in the present. God has caused them to be born again now to a living hope in the future. Jesus has been resurrected, a current reality, and he will be revealed in the future when, Peter says, you will see him face to face. And so salvation is not only that which they currently possess, you know, once saved, always saved. Thank God I'm saved. But it's that for which they strive as the outcome of their faith. And this future also radically reorients them to the present so that their suffering, amazingly enough, does not make them miserable, but joyful. Their joy is inexpressible and filled with glory. It's a joy that those around them cannot understand. You should be miserable, the people are thinking. But they're not. In other words, this is a transcendent joy that far exceeds their immediate physical, mental, and emotional affliction. Their physical condition, as hard as it is, can also be transportive. So that this glory and joy is not an out-of-body experience, something for their souls only. This is, not, this is not Gnosticism here. But it's made possible in and through their bodies as they live in and amongst their neighbors. And that's one reason why the early church was so successful. We have an old letter from Diognetus who told why the early Christians stunned people. He says, we share our table with all, but we do, not, we do not share our bed, our bodies with all. He said, in other words, pagans are promiscuous with their bodies, but stingy with everything else. Christians are stingy with their body and promiscuous with all the material goods. Generous, giving. While the bodies of the surrounding Gentile community are pleasure palaces indulging in the passions of the flesh, Peter indicates that suffering directs these followers of Jesus to the joy of a deeper and transcendent reality in their suffering. And two, that inheritance, imperishable and undefiled and unfading, far greater and quite unlike the ephemeral pleasures of the flesh, which like grass withers and like flowers fall. The early church father, St. Maximus the Confessor, writing about suffering and pleasure, says that reaching out for pleasure without undergoing any prior suffering, as Adam did in the garden, introduces a form of pleasure that, in fact, 
culminates in pain. Eating for the sake of eating leads to gluttony and addiction to eating, which produces pain when one can't soothe oneself by eating. And not to single that out, gluttony, but he says likewise for all other supposed pleasures. And then Maximus goes on to say that Christ has provided another beginning and a second birth, a genesis for human nature, which through the vehicle of suffering ends in the pleasure of the life to come. And Peter writes the same thing several hundred years before Maximus, and I'm sure Maximus must have meditated on this passage. Peter says, you are born again in a living hope, born once in the flesh and then again in the spirit, so that the second birth does not negate the first birth, but incorporates it. You can't die twice. Uh, I don't believe it's possible. But, but, but you can be born twice, and it's the second birth which draws that which is of the first birth, our physical bodies, through suffering and death, and not an intensification of pleasure, into a realm beyond death. Whew, that was a lot. <laughs> We certainly don't seek suffering and pain, but neither do we avoid it. Rather, we go through it for what it produces in our lives and in the life to come. The full scope of salvation includes that initial moment of the new birth, culminating in the revelation of Jesus. And its vehicle is suffering and the love not of the suffering, but the love which suffering produces. And then... Sarah didn't read this, it was later verses, but if you look, and by the way, please read First Peter through these next few weeks. Um, Peter says, these are the same things into which the angels long to look. If you think about angels, this is precisely what they don't experience, but they long for, this suffering unto salvation. Because suffering in our bodies, we experience God's redeeming love in ways that angels cannot. The angels are not only our guardian angels there to protect us, they're also our celestial audience, watching with fascination and delight. So this brings us to what I think is the most interesting verse in this passage. Though you have not seen him, Peter says, you love him. Um, Roberta Flack immortalized the song by another writer. I didn't get the writer's name, but the first time ever I saw your face. It's a song about love at first sight, the headlong, heart-swelling, falling in love that deepens as you continue to see and be with that person. I'm sure that some of you have experienced that kind of love. This is not that. Loving Jesus, the love of our life, is not dependent on first sight or any physical sight, but on faith. And this reorients us to love, not as the incentive for sustaining a relationship, you know, we often say, I, I, we hear, I think I am no longer in love with you, so I don't want to continue in this relationship. But this is love as a reward for the faithful tenacity with which we hold on to a relationship. Faith leads to faithfulness through hardship and suffering, and its reward is love. What an amazing reorientation of that. And this is a particular kind of faith, Peter said. It's not a static faith, a belief system. This is a faith bolstered by action. Faith is not only something you believe, it's something you live, and more than that, it's someone you live, someone you love. Today's gospel reading helps us understand Thomas declares his belief in Jesus only after he has seen, both seen the risen Lord and touched his wounds. 
Jesus says, blessed are those who have not seen and believed, which is exactly what Peter says in his letter to these scattered followers of Jesus. Uh, Richard Bauckham in his book, Jesus and the Eyewitnesses, writes, it is the testimony of those who did see and believed that enables those who have not seen also to believe, and it is the gospel that mediates the testimony of those who have seen to those who have not, so that the latter may believe. For the disciples, there was one resurrection and repeated revelations before and after the resurrection. Many revelations before the disciples finally believed and could say along with Thomas, my Lord and my God, which is the gospel of John's climactic Christological confession. And it was only then that the disciples became apostles. And Peter starts his letter, the greeting, the salutation, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. The disciples, the followers of Jesus, became the apostles, the ones who were sent out. That's why I love that picture of, you know, the Old Testament foreshadowing this, the Noah sending out the raven and then sending out the dove, you know, to re- it for, it's a picture of recreation. And here again, we have a sending out. The apostles preaching and living out the gospel that's animated by the recreating power of the Holy Spirit not just a raven and a dove, but the Holy Spirit, even as Jesus was sent by his Father, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. That's a long way of saying, to get to this point. In other words, these Galatian Christians believed in Jesus because they believed in Peter. Craig Keener writes, the Spirit presents the real Jesus through the testimony of these witnesses. Jesus is not here. The angels tell Mary, he is risen, he's on the loose, and you can have him, but you cannot keep him, but you can share him. You can live in him as he lives in you through the Spirit. Jesus remains within us as we go out, present in us as we too are sent out to one another and to the world. The real Jesus, the real gospel makes us real so that others know the love of Jesus through the testimony of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Authenticity. It's not only being true to yourself, it's being true to Christ in you. I've been reading Cyprian Smith, The Way of Paradox. It's very hard to understand. I keep reading pages over and over again. (laughs) You know what that's like, right? Um, And he writes, rather than merely follow Christ or believe in Christ, we become Christ. We are no longer mere followers of Christ. We live in Christ, sharing his relationship to the Father, being sons as he is son, being sons and daughter, daughters as he is son through the Holy Spirit. And I guess we could call this a synergy of reality. As Jesus becomes this reality in our lives, we become more deeply real. Not phony people, not bad actors, but ourselves. So that the reality of Jesus is evident in our lives. The church does not need fancy programming, electrifying teaching and preaching and high drama. We need each other showing up and being real. I'm going to close with a story. Uh, Tammy uh, said, Rob, don't tell the story. You're just wanting to tell a story, you know, just for the story. But I think this story works. (laughs) You be the judge. One of my best friends from boarding school, a long-time friend, decades of friendship here, called me yesterday, and his name is Tim, and we talked a lot about his aging father who's also suffering from dementia. And Tim refuses to put him in a home. 
Instead, he takes his dad to work. Every day is a take the dad, dad to work day. And Tim, Tim was a, a builder. He's a builder, as was his father, who was also a missionary in Vietnam and then in the Philippines when, when they had to leave Vietnam. And while Tim renovates the house, he sits his dad in a room to watch TV. And at the end of the day, Tim says, my dad acts as if he's been building the house all day. He says, Tim, wasn't it wonderful what we did? <laughs> and last Sunday at an Easter service, Tim's dad leaned over to, his, to Tim's sister, his daughter, um, the dad's daughter, and, and asked in a loud whisper, who died? <laughs> in the cars they were driving away from the service, Tim's dad looked at him and said, these are the best days of my life. Tim's dad has perhaps forgotten who Jesus was, is up here, but he knows in his heart, and he knows who Tim is, and his son is showing him Jesus. Amen.